You're listening to Plenary Session. On this episode of Plenary Session, you're in for a treat. I have listener feedback from the last episode of Plenary Session where we talked about the rates of screening over time. Next, I'm back in the thick of things. I'm back in bill cap. Just when I thought I was out, you pulled me back in. I got to discuss it yet again because the outcry about my treatment of bill cap is vociferous, loud, very nearly constant, but unfortunately doesn't make solid points. And that's what I hope to convince you of. Finally, I'm going to talk about waterfall plots in the medical journals over time. We see a lot of waterfall plots. They're often Instagrammed, hashtag no filtered, but what we find is they are in fact filtered. They provide a visual distortion of the response rate. And I'm going to take you through data done by Sunny Kim that appears now in JAMA Network Open that proves this phenomenon is true. And finally, I have a far-reaching discussion with Dr. Jeff Sharman, who is a community oncologist who's known for running the hematology trials of the U.S. Oncology Group. He's done a lot of important clinical studies. Uh, I had a slight mental lapse, and I forgot two things. One, the approval of a sick inhibitor, and two, that uh, venetoclax had not been tested in DLBCL. I knew these two things, but yet I had these momentary lapses because I had been busy working very, very hard on that Saturday. So... Forgive me those two things. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it later. All right, stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. First up this week on Plenary Session, I've got some listener feedback about one of the topics we covered on the last episode. On the last episode, we discussed a study that showed as the day wore on, the rate at which patients who were newly seen by primary care physicians were referred to and underwent cancer screening with mammography or colorectal cancer screening diminished as the day wore on. And this led to a headline in the New York Times that was extremely unfortunate, entitled, Don't See Your Primary Care Physician in the Afternoon. I didn't like that headline. I thought it was the wrong lesson. And two astute listeners agree with me. First, from Twitter, Dr. Kareen Tawagi, and I hope I didn't mispronounce that name, who in her first tweet writes, this is my first tweet, Should the New York Times headline have been, patients who schedule morning PCP visits more likely to consent to colonoscopies, mammography, then don't visit your doctor in the afternoon? Which, I have to say, hats off. Thank you so much for that being your first tweet. And also uh, for hitting the nail on the head. Another listener writes, this is Sarah Sorling. Or people who work and require 5 p.m. appointment slots have reduced inclination or access to screening procedures than those who arrive at 8 a.m. So that's the alternative explanation. Finally, I got an email from someone I admire a great deal. Dr. Kenny Lin, who is a professor of medicine at Georgetown University, a practicing family physician, and one of the editors over there at the AFP Journal, which is one of the premier journals for practicing physicians. Kenny writes, 
Loved your latest episode, especially the discussion of the study promoted in the media as don't see your primary care doctor in the afternoon. An equally valid interpretation could have been maybe more shared decision-making regarding cancer screening occurs in the afternoon, leading more patients to make informed decisions to decline interventions with marginal benefits. And I think Dr. Lin hits the nail on the head because that's the challenge with cancer screening. The right rate of cancer screening is the rate that is commensurate and proportionate with the percent of people who want to have it done after engaging in truly shared decision-making. It's not 100%. So all of the hospitals and healthcare systems out there that use screening percentages as a benchmark for any quality metric or any amount of physician reimbursement for their salaries are making a grievous error that history will not look kindly upon. And you heard it here first, so you could easily ameliorate that error right now. So that's the listener feedback. Next up, Bill Cap. So my episode on Bill Cap has generated pushback from many people who think that data is good enough for shared decision making and that I'm being too tough on that study. Now, just a little recap. If you want to get the full scoop on Bill Cap, you can go back and listen to the podcast on that episode. But in short, I pointed out that there were at least three randomized control trials run on adjuvant biliary tree cancer. And of these three studies, one had a p-value of a 0.7-something, totally null. Another one, 0.4, totally null. And then comes along Bill Cap, capecitabine versus observation. I guess listeners want to hear the hard K sound on that, and so I'm going to give it to you. Your capecitabine. I'm so I'm so sorry that I've mispronounced a fictitious name that was invented for a drug a few years ago. So I'm sorry about that for the listeners. I'll, maybe I'll stick to Zalota, which is what the manufacturer wanted us to do. They wanted us to get to Zalota. Okay, so Zalota versus observation, p-value 0.09. Now, the thing I like to point out in my original episode was when you run three randomized trials of adjuvant therapy drugs, Gem, Gemox, and Zolota, and a priori, you do not have a favorite. You don't have any reason to believe that one is going to be more successful than the other. For instance, Gem has been successful in pancreas cancer. Uh, Gem is active in biliary cancer in the metastatic setting. You have no reason to believe that the Gemox trial is going to be negative and the Zolota trial will be positive or vice versa. When you do it that way, what is the chance that one in three of those studies you're going to stumble across a p-value of 0.1 or better. And the answer is it's roughly 1 in 3. There's roughly a 1 in 3 chance by chance alone at least one of those studies will have a p-value that looks roughly like the p-value in one of those three studies, which is what we happen to see here. That is an incredibly high alpha error to tolerate. That's an incredibly high rate of false positive results, assuming the null hypothesis that these drugs don't actually add much. But there's a number of reasons I argued on Twitter that the probability Bill Cap is actually a negative study is even higher. And what are some of the clues I have found that emerged from extended debates that I probably should have spent my time on? One, the statistical analysis plan was not defined at the outset of the study. It was only written and is attached in the protocol dated 2009, which is three years after the trial started accruing patients. Now, somebody made the point like, look, you don't always have to have your statistical analysis plan drafted all out in full at the start of the study. And sure, that's fine. And I like to use a little analogy to explain why. It's like placing your bets in roulette. We spin the wheel and you place your bets. 
you don't have to place your bats right before I spin the wheel, but I'd like you to place the bats before the wheel has spun for three years. You'd like to place the bats while the wheel is spinning fast, okay? You don't want to place your bats when it's starting to slow down, okay? That's the whole principle here. You want to state at the outset what you expect to find. And of course, what they expected to find in that 2009 document, which is attached in the supplement, is an increase in absolute two-year overall survival. They do not say they're going to use the log rank test. That was only specified in the protocol in the 2016 protocol that they've attached to the document. It did not say that in the 2009 document. Someone's pushing back saying, well, that's what everyone would have assumed it meant. That's an assumption, I think. And we all know what assumptions do to people, which I won't spell out. Um, Okay, that's one thing. Two, what's the stopping rule of the study? The stopping rule of the study is once we decide to stop accruing patients, we're going to analyze the data at least two years after we've accrued the last person. But when do you decide to stop accruing patients? That's a flexible choice. And two years or more, so in other words, I, I told this person after arguing a little bit, I'm going to respond to your tweet two days or more after the last time I've looked at your last tweet. So you can wait around for whenever that might be because I had gotten a little bit fed up. Um, okay, so there's a flexibility in when they look at the data. There's flexibility in when they drafted the plan. The plan doesn't exactly say what they did. It's poorly worded and quite, as I call it, threadbare. And then there's the added problem. The elephant problem, which is the p-value is not even significant. It's p of 0.09. And if you looked at the two-year overall survival, that's not significant either. And the hazard ratio is not significant either. The log rank is not significant. And the magnitude of benefit is driven by the chance that at the median moment, the difference between the two arms is actually a little bit more than it is at any other point. And you can prove that to yourself by dividing the medians and comparing it to the hazard ratio, for instance. So it's this fluke difference is why people say, well, the benefit is large. And I just, it just struck me that the way in which people describe Bill Cap reminded me of an old drug advertisement that I had difficulty believing, which said, not statistically significant, but clinically meaningful. And that's exactly what people have interpreted Bill Cap to be. Okay, then the next thing, the next argument about Bill Cap is this issue of rarity. So this issue came up. They say VP is too hard on Bill Cap because VP says biliary tree cancer, Hodgkin's disease are roughly occurring at the same frequency, but that doesn't take into account that we're talking about resected biliary tree cancer. Fair enough. Okay, resected biliary tree cancer. That doesn't help your argument. Let me tell you why. Whatever incidence you want to say biliary, resected biliary tree cancer occurs at, I have a few things to say to you. One, pediatric oncology. With relatively low sample sizes, the entire field of pediatric oncology has proven themselves quite capable, willing, and able to engage in randomization to answer important clinical questions to improve outcomes for their patients. Two, Firm Act. Firm Act is a randomized controlled trial of adrenal cortical cancer. Now, many of you may not have that much experience with ACC, and that's because it's quite rare. I Happened to have some experience with ACC because I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Tito Fojo at the NCI for many years. And Tito Fojo ran an ACC clinic. And as I like to say, ACC has an incidence of 0.7 per 1 million. And yet, Act was able to enroll several hundred people and answer a clinically meaningful question in a short period of time. There's another piece of data that you should know. 
listeners who are very interested in this topic can take a look at a paper I published in the European Journal of Cancer, which talks about whether or not it is feasible, practical, and possible to do randomized trials in rare cancers. One of the things we cite in that is an FDA paper that came out many years ago that looked at what was the frequency of drug approvals based on incidents that relied upon a randomized trial. Let me put that to you another way. Among conditions that have an incidence of less than 6 per 100,000, 5 per 100,000, 4 per 100,000, 3 per 100,000, 2 per 100,000, 1 per 100,000, what are the fraction of drugs that come to market for those indications that use a randomized trial to get to market? Now, people out there who believe that the ability to conduct randomized trials is deeply linked to the frequency of the tumor should hypothesize some relationship that as you go up six-fold increase, five-fold increase in frequency, you're going to have some increase, some commensurate increase in the percentage of drugs that are approved on the basis of randomized trials. But what you in fact find in this paper that we cite in our paper, because I can't remember that citation off the top of my head, is that it's roughly a third in every single category, and it doesn't appear to be interacting with or depending on the incidence. There's another thing you need to know. Let's just take a cancer like primary CNS lymphoma. Primary CNS lymphoma, we have many, many, many uncontrolled studies, and we have quite few randomized studies. Okay, so there's some places we have randomized studies, some places we don't. Perhaps we could talk about polycythemia vera. That's a condition for which we have, I think, good randomized data, even though it's quite rare. Why do I say all these examples? I want to offer the provocative argument, and I think in the course of the next few months, we're going to publish some papers in which there's some data that I don't want to tell you right now, but we'll bolster this argument. This argument is that the greatest impedance to conducting randomized controlled trials is not the rarity of the tumor. That is quite overstated as a barrier to doing the study. I believe that the greatest barrier is investigators' reluctance to sit down at a table, collaborate, and decide to answer a question together, and instead choose to pursue their own individual projects. And one of the clearest, I think, professional incentives that drives this behavior is if I publish a phase two, and you publish a phase two, and so-and-so publishes a phase two, we're all getting a first and last author paper in a medium tier journal. If we all work together and pool our patients and publish a randomized trial, there's only going to be one first author and there's only going to be one last author. And I don't care how many times you put an asterisk and say, these 25 people contributed equally and these 25 people are the co-corresponding author. The community to some degree doesn't believe that. Okay, so that's, I think, part of this idea of, of, of credit. Um, and that might be one of the biggest barriers to doing these studies. There are obviously other barriers I think we see in cardiology, which is a dogged belief that some things are sacrosanct and can never be tested in a randomized study, so that's another barrier. Uh, but I believe that if you truly care for people with rare conditions, you will use the example, you will use the examples of Firm Act, of ACC, of PVERA, of pediatric oncology, and many, many other settings where randomized trials are the norm, are de facto, and extend that to your populations. The simplest thing here to do is to repeat a Zolota-like trial in biliary tree cancer, not to utilize that for treatment.
right now because it is a null study and it is one of three null studies. It's just the one of the three that happened to have the lowest p-value, which still is not low enough. And that happened to be a p-value that emerged from an analysis that was quite flexible where the SAP was written three years after the start of the study where they didn't specify exactly how they're gonna look at the primary endpoint until 2016, 10 years after the start of the study, and where they analyzed the data at least two years from the last accrual, but it could have been more. And in the particular case, it was two years and three months all of these ways in which flexibility have been inserted, the P is not significant, it is not a very credible study. Okay, the last thing I want to say. Somebody, you know, argues that this is the setting for shared decision making. And I I think that's difficult. Um, It's a difficult proposition uh, because we typically use shared decision making in medicine when the probabilities of events are known and we are working with the patient to decide whether or not those probabilities are worth it for the patient. It's difficult to use shared decision-making when the fundamental efficacy of a therapy has not been demonstrated and when the probabilities are unknown. And and if you really do believe that this is the threshold of shared decision-making, then I want you to do something for me. If you believe bill cap should be used in the clinic for shared decision-making, I want you to write down what it is about bill cap that allows you to do that. What are your rules for the shared decision-making zone? And here's what you gotta put in there. One, what is the p-values that you're willing to take in your shared decision-making zone? So it's gotta be probably p of 0.1, but maybe you like, what, 0.15, 0.2? Okay, write that down. Then maybe, okay, it has previously worked in the metastatic setting. Maybe you'll write that down. Uh, But that's probably not a good rule for adjuvant therapy by and by because almost everything that's been tested in the adjuvant setting has previously shown benefit or response in the metastatic setting and the majority of those therapies failed. Okay, well, don't need to bore yourself with all that history. Okay, maybe you'll say that sapecitabine works by this mechanism of action. Sapecitabine only costs so much. um, Although, if one of the things that is part of your shared decision-making zone discussion is the cost, uh, then, then you actually have to think about what you're doing. What you're actually saying is that for some things that cost a lot, they don't enter your shared decision-making zone, which means that you paternalistically impose your cost preferences on a human being and don't allow them to make a choice. Uh, I think that's a deeply problematic sentiment, so I think you might want to think twice about it, whether or not that's going to make your list. Okay, so the reason I say is you make your list, your, your universalizable principles, the principles under which you're willing to enter in your shared decision-making zone, the principles that, of course, they must capture bill cap study, and now you take it the next step, which is you want to say that I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to abide by these principles in a variety of circumstances. And you go ahead and tweet me your list or email me your list and let's see your list. And I'll think, and you think, of other drugs that meet the criteria on your list that you in fact are not doing shared decision making on. Either because those drugs were never approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which by the way, Zolota would not have been if this were the only study of Zolota to date. They would not be on the U.S. market. The only reason you can use shared decision-making is that it, by chance, is used off-label for this purpose. Okay, so you make your rule there. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of drugs that didn't come to market that might meet some of your rules. There may have be other drugs that can be used off-label that meet your set of principles. And then I think you have to ask yourself, are you truly willing to act consistently? If those criteria are met, are you willing to engage in shared decision-making across the board? It doesn't have to just be adjuvant. It could be second-line metastatic, third-line metastatic. What are all the scenarios that equally meet that criteria? 
And I strongly suspect you will not be able to do this. You will prove by this exercise that one, you cannot articulate the principles by which you think Bill Cap should get a pass, or two, having thus articulated said principles, you are unwilling to extend that to the logical conclusion and you're unwilling to act consistently. This exercise, I think, will reveal that I think People who are engaging this practice are engaging in inconsistent behavior, perhaps even hypocritical behavior. So I think the answer here is it's not ready for shared decision making. It's a null trial, people. I don't know what to say. It's a null trial. Somebody was arguing with me and they said, my goal is to correct erroneous interpretations of this study. I was like, you should start with the fact that this is a positive trial. That's the first erroneous interpretation. It's a null trial. It's always been a null trial. It is a very, very null trial. It's one of three null trials. It happens to be the least null of the three, and that's why you like it. And get over any other reason why you like it more than that. And, um, and the last thing I'd say is, you know, so a bunch of people were annoyed that I called it safe cytobine. Said I should use that hard C sound, Cape Cytobine. I've switched to Zalota now because that's the real compromise there. Um, I will say that uh, for anyone who feels I mispronounced it, I, I do apologize. Um, but you've misinterpreted it. And I think the lesser of the two evils is to mispronounce it. I think the worse of the two evils is to consistently misinterpret it and apply it to human beings. So those are my two cents on Bill Cap. And I hope that the Bill Cap issue can be laid to rest because it is a negative study. And anyone who says otherwise, you ask them, what's your checklist by which you say we can move into the shared decision-making zone? What is your, your P close enough? What's the range? What are the other features of this approval that meet your close enough range? Or you write those down. And then you send me that list and I'll think of examples that fit that list that this person will be unwilling to actually prescribe and I will reveal that they are acting inconsistently or hypocritical. And thus, my point will be made. But, alas, it's probably unlikely to change their opinion. People feel quite strongly, and I do not understand why. I do not understand why Bill Cap is an issue for which so many people wish to disregard the totality of the data. And I also think Bill Cap um, illustrates why so much of the time we spend in biomedicine teaching people mechanistic sciences, the mechanism by which sapecytobine is converted to the active drug in the cell and acts via similar pathways through 5-FU, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, that's important to know, but wouldn't we be best served if we spent commensurate time teaching the majority of clinicians how to interpret probabilistic uh, studies, how to think probabilistically, which I think is something even bigger than statistics, which is how can you think about this question from the point of view of someone who thinks about science and trials as a probabilistic endeavor? And I think they're not doing that because they've not been trained to think that way. Um, and if they were trained to think that way, they wouldn't be holding such a dogged conclusion. And those are just my two cents on the topic. And I think for anyone who thinks that the cost is one of the reasons why this enters the shared decision-making zone, I think that person's in for a rude awakening when they realize that what they have done is use cost in a very paternalistic way to decide what a person has the right to spend their own money on or the right to spend others' money on. And they are actually taking away decisions from someone uh, on the basis of cost. And I think that would create a lot of problematic scenarios in the clinic. Uh, and it's something that I don't think many people advise, which is that would be a form of de facto rationing at the bedside level, which is something that I haven't heard a lot of people embrace. But if you feel that way, I encourage you to go ahead and, and to write an editorial and flesh out those views so that many others can be able to look at your point of view on that issue and, and see whether or not they agree with that point of view.
So I think it's actually a good exercise. I look forward to reading your list of why, of what constitutes the shared decision-making zone. And maybe on the next plenary session, I'll talk more about that. The last thing I want to talk about before the interview with Dr. Jeff Sharman is waterfall plots. There are a number of things about cancer medicine that distinguish us as a field. One of those things is we love superlative words. We love the words miracle, revolution, game changer, home run, cure, breakthrough. And some evidence that we like those words as we did an analysis a few years ago where we found that half of the time people use those words, they're talking about a drug that does not yet have FDA approval when they use those words in the media. And 14% of the times when they use those words in the media, they're talking about a drug that has only been given to mice. So hashtag in mice. Um, I believe that to be deeply problematic because um, we all know that even drugs that improve outcomes for mice face almost lottery-like odds of being successfully translated to human beings. So that would be, I believe, excessive use of superlatives. One superlative comes to mind that is, you know, quite interesting. That's the use of unprecedented, which really kind of has a very special definition, which is nothing that has come before of equal or greater magnitude. We did a study a few years ago where we found that a good chunk of the use of unprecedented was actually used to describe a phenomenon for which there was a precedent that was bigger. So in fact, it was precedented. So it's a problematic use. Okay, why do I talk about hype? I believe that one of the ways in which hype has manifested itself in oncology is the derivation of novel plots that are hyped. And one of these plots is the waterfall plot. So listeners will know, the waterfall sh plot shows for every patient for whom a subsequent scan could be done, for whom tumor could be assessed, what is the single best subsequent scan? So typically there are a few bars that go up, there may be some bars that are pretty neutral, and there may be some bars that dip down. What does it mean if you go up? If the single best subsequent scan is an upward or tumor growth, I believe that means that that is usually perhaps the first subsequent scan, and it suggests that the tumor is growing wrong at a certain growth rate, and the drug may have changed the growth rate, but it certainly is not generating any tumor shrinkage, and the tumor is just growing, and it's just probably going to continue to grow more in the future. So I suspect that the majority of the upward columns of a waterfall plot are the immediate subsequent scan. Uh, for... Many of the columns on a waterfall plot that are pretty close to the baseline, those probably are also the next scan. Maybe they're having some slow tumor growth. People like to highlight that stable disease fraction in the middle of those plots. Uh, that's often misleading because when you take a group of people who've been exposed to multiple prior lines of therapy and still um, are able to undergo a clinical protocol, they often have indolent biology, and so your stable disease fraction might be quite large simply by virtue of patient selection. Then over on the right end of the of the waterfall plot typically are those plunging bars that dip down, showing really dramatic best tumor measurements. And in those cases, you actually don't know which scan that was. Was it the second scan, the fourth scan, the 75th scan? It could have been any scan. The single best subsequent scan could have been if the, the response deepened over a year or the response was greatest one month out. Um, one of the things that tends to be missing from waterfall plots is people in whom the cancer grows rapidly and cannot be assessed um, by imaging are often excluded from waterfall plots, thus they fall out of the denominator. The other thing about waterfall plots that's, um, you know, 
probably something that only Clovis Oncology would appreciate is that it doesn't require a confirmatory scan. You just need to show the single subsequent best scan, and you don't need to do that confirmatory scan per resist 1.1 if your primary endpoint is response rate. And uh, astute listeners who know the history of Clovis Oncology will find that maybe a bit humorous. Listeners who don't know that history uh, should read a wonderful paper in the Annals of Oncology called Has the Tiger Lost Its Stripes? So back to my back to this thing. So I had seen so many waterfall plots for so many years. Um, sometimes I started to see these waterfall plots, and I looked. And I said, "Wow, look at that! Look how many of those columns are below minus thirty, which is typically resist one point one response rate criteria." I said it looks to me like a third or below, or below minus thirty, or twenty percent, or ten percent, or fifty percent. And then I would read the paper in detail, which is. Uh, a pesky habit I, I sometimes have. And I find that the response rate, it looks like 33% visually, but the response rate here, it says it's 25% response rate. It looks like 50%, but the response rate says it's 37.5%. Or in some cases, it looks like 50%, but the response rate is 17%. What's going on here? Enter Dr. Kim. Sunny Kim is an incoming fellow in hematology oncology here at OHSU and a truly fantastic researcher, uh, a careful thinker, and currently a hospitalist practicing in, in Oregon. Sunny Kim decided to empirically look at many, many waterfall plots. She collected waterfall plots through the top medical journals over time, and we have just published these results in JAMA Network Open. The title of our paper is Assessment of Accuracy of Waterfall Plot Representations of Response Rates in Cancer Treatment, published in medical journals. And in our paper, Sunny Kim has compared the response rate as documented by investigators and central review against the visual fraction of bars that dip below response rate criteria. And what do you guess Sunny Kim has found? First, I'll give you a little piece of information that I should have said first uh, that's not the answer to that question, which is, we found, of course, over time, the use of waterfall plots has gone up among the fraction of articles in these journals because people like waterfall plots. And if you don't believe people like waterfall plots, I urge you to use the hashtag ASCO19 and look at all the waterfall plots that are about to be tweeted out in just a minute. People love waterfall plots. So we find that, in fact, they do go up over time. It is a new way to display these results. And what does Sunny Kim find? She finds that waterfall plots overestimate response rate by something like six percentage points when compared against investigator review and 12 percentage points at median when compared against central assessment with kind of a big 25 to 75 uh, you know, box plot box, 25th to 75th percentile box, suggesting that they can often grossly overestimate response rate. And it almost always overestimates response rate for those two reasons I mentioned to you at the beginning of this podcast, that it's excluding people in whom response cannot be assessed and it doesn't require confirmatory scans which is something that perhaps only one company would really appreciate. Um, these two things exaggerate response rate. Why does this matter? Of course, I mean, of course that a field that is driven by hype has found a way to use a plot that itself is a form of hype. It's a visual hype. It For people who have practiced for many years who knew the response rate of drugs because they were reported as resist 1.1 response rates, these practitioners are continually bombarded with visual graphics that to their eye cast the impression that response rates are greater than they actually are. If you practiced for 20, 25 years in oncology or more, 30 years, even 10 years, you are not able to compare your experiences of a decade ago with your experiences now 
because the plot is an upward estimate. It's a visual distortion of the response rate. There's two easy ways to fix it. One, include columns for people who can't be assessed. Two, uh, include perhaps the second best scan. Show me the waterfall plot of best scan. Now show me everyone's second best scan. Show me everyone's third best scan. Show me everyone's worst scan. You know, let's get a sense of this. Or do a landmark waterfall plot. Let's just say everyone's third scan. There are different ways you can show the data, but the, any, the single best subsequent scan is perhaps the most favorable and distorted way to show the data. And that's, in fact, what Sonny Kim's finds. Somebody tweeted at me that, oh, we knew all this before you did this study. And I like to say, oh, did you? You knew that it was a 12%, you knew the numerical percentage visual distortion was 12%, did you now? I don't think you did. Because that's the thing about good empirical research. Even if it tells you something you thought you knew, it can quantify and put boundaries on the magnitude of that effect that you may not have known. So be perfectly honest, because I have to be perfectly honest, even though I sense this phenomenon was real, I did not know the magnitude, and that's why people do research. And then the last thing I'll say, somebody pointed out um, to me, they said, this is a nice study for someone who's a trainee. And I said, thank you for saying that. Because, um, and, and they say, actually, someone something further. They said that, you know, so many times trainees are asked to answer questions that are impossible to answer and end up using methods that are really fragmented and flawed. And, and they probably, they may even find themselves discussed on plenary session. I don't know. Um, but in this particular case, you ask a question that's a very, very narrow question. And maybe not a lot of people are interested in that question. Okay. I apologize if that's the case. Um, but it's very, very narrow, but it's highly answerable. It's a highly answerable question. It's a very uh, focused scope. And um, Sunny Kim, who's a very dedicated, smart, and talented uh, hospitalist who's an aspiring hemonc doctor, uh, is able to hit the ball out of the park. And I think that's what you have to look for if you are a trainee seeking a project. You want to do, I think, probably empirical research. We could talk at another podcast, but you probably don't want to do too many case reports and review articles because I think there is an attitude pervasive that that is a lesser form of scholarship. You certainly don't want to do a review article when um, you read the manuscript more times than any other person will read the manuscript. And unfortunately, that's the case for many review articles published in uh, low-tier journals. So you don't want to do those review articles. That's a waste of everyone's time. You would like to do empirical work. It should be work that asks very tractable, tangible questions. Those don't have to be the most important questions in the world, but they should be answerable by the methods you have and the tools you have at your disposal. I hope this waterfall plot paper is one of those things. It told me something I didn't know, that it's a 12% median uh, increase in the, in the response rate. It's something that I'm going to point out it, when people start to celebrate waterfall plots. Um, and uh, for the listeners who said uh, this was the waterfall that Chris uh, Booth and I visited, I have to assure you it was not. Uh, we visited uh, a real waterfall. All right. So on that positive note, we'll turn to our interview with Dr. Jeff Sharman. I'm back here in plenary session HQ, now on the waterfront with Dr. Jeff Sharman. Dr. Sharman should be known to many of you in hematology oncology for a number of important clinical trials and papers that have come out over the course of the last decade. Dr. Sharman did his medical school at the University of California, Davis. He's originally from California, is that right, Dr. Sharman? Yes. You went on to do your residency at man's greatest hospital. There's no place better <laughs> than the MGH. Uh, he went on to do his fellowship in hematology oncology from Stanford University, where he crossed paths with one of our faculty members, Dr. Andy Chin, who works here in transplant lymphoma. And Dr. Sharman went after that fellowship from Stanford to Willamette Valley Cancer Center, which is based in Eugene, Oregon, which is about an hour and a half, two hours south of Portland, Oregon. 
um, where he has kind of spearheaded the U.S. oncology group um, and done a number of important clinical trials, I would say primarily in heme malignancies, but even a little bit beyond that as well. He's also used the broad U.S. oncology network to tackle questions about real-world data. He's an expert in CLL, among other things, and it's a pleasure to have him here on the plenary session. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this. It's great to have you, Dr. Sharman. Thank you so much for coming to the HQ. And you get to see the magnificent square footage that I'm allotted here <laughs> in, this, uh, in this parcel of land. Um, Dr. Sharman, where should we get started? I guess I'd say, um, I'm wondering if you could, uh, I kind of want to take listeners through your, your history and what, what led you to where you are today. Um, I guess we'll start there. So, um, you know, you grew up in California and you went to medical school in California. Um, what made you go down the path of internal medicine? So actually, as an undergraduate, I wasn't uh, focused necessarily on a career in medicine. Oh. I had been getting an undergraduate degree in, in uh, biochemistry because that's what I liked. Uh, and I found as I was going through my undergraduate degree, just time and again, the things that I liked most were, were related to human health. And uh, I had grand ambitions of being a community college teacher. That was my, uh, that was my goal. A uh, biology teacher, biochemistry uh, yeah, teacher. And yeah, and then I had sort of a, a crisis of vision there in my, my senior year of undergraduate. And, and uh, a letter showed up in my mailbox for Doctors Without Borders. And I said, that's what I want to do. And, and uh, so late in my senior year, I, I redirected. And of course, I'm not doing anything with Doctors Without Borders because along the way, my interest changed again. Uh, but as I went through under, uh, through medical school, I was so impressed by the uh, oncologist because there was this breadth of knowledge, and it was sort of like internal medicine on steroids. Uh, so I decided, uh, even as a medical student, that I wanted to go into oncology, and that remained my vision. In fact, even as a resident, I kind of fell in love with the lymphomas and leukemias. So. Uh, I picked Stanford for fellowship uh, mm -hmm. because of the history there mm -hmm. of, of lymphoma and leukemia. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a funny thing to go through training uh, where, you know, mentorship comes and goes. And sometimes you have good mentors. Sometimes uh, there's a lack of mentors. And I, I found myself actually at Stanford kind of lacking um, mentorship and so I was um, captivated by Epstein-Barr virus and I read a lot about Epstein-Barr virus and uh, it, it, viruses just simplify things in a way that that uh, it's kind of like the ultimate model system because you know Epstein-Barr virus can take hold of a cell even with just three genes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, one of those genes really um, seemed interesting to me this gene called LMP2A and in part because it functionally mimicked the B-cell receptor. Hmm. So as I learned about the B-cell receptor and, and LMP2A and Hodgkin's disease and how Epstein-Barr virus interacts with Hodgkin's disease, it occurred to me that if you inhibited some of the intracellular machinery that the virus co-ops, uh, you could potentially create therapy. So I initially thought that inhibiting LMP2A could be a useful therapy in, in uh some of the Epstein-Barr virus-related uh, lymphomas, and that led us to a sick inhibitor. Mm. So at the time, there was a, a sick SYK yep. uh, inhibitor being developed by a local biopharmaceutical company for nasal allergies, and I cold-called them and said, hey, this I is in the Bay Area. Yeah, this is in yeah. the Bay Area. And so okay. I called them and said, I think you got a drug for lymphoma, and they said, um, well... Why? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And but uh, you know, actually, the guy who answered the phone, they, they, they this was a company that didn't even, didn't even have uh, 
it wasn't a, didn't have any approved products, so they put me through to one of the VPs. <laughs> and so I'm talking wow. with them, and the same VP had once prior in his career had a, a fellow call him, said I think your your urokinase could be used to treat uh, heart attacks, and really? that was the that was the birth of of uh, angiolytics, of course. And so we developed some preclinical research with sick inhibitors. It became a clinical trial. As a proof of concept, it, it worked. Um, that ended up in the uh, plenary session at ASH in San Francisco, I think in like 2009 or 2010. Okay. And at the same time we were doing that, one of the people who rotated through our clinic had just scooped up this uh, drug called PCI32765 that was sort of a throwaway from a company called Solera. Mm-hmm. Um, and a uh, competitive guy who said, well, if sick is a good target, well, then BTK should be a good target, too, because they're right next to each other in, so in the signaling Ibr- pathway. This is ibrutinib. So that was the birth of ibrutinib. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and Solera is the Craig Venter company. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. they dumped this for, like, pennies. It wasn't even pennies. It was an add-on. They, uh, they it was purchased just a bun- an HDAC6 uh, from them. I see. And Solera was just in. getting out of the drug business. I see. And, and so um, that became ibrutinib. And so... I left Stanford in 2008, and uh, the trial was struggling. Um, I left it uh, in the hands of one of my fellows behind me. The sick inhibitor trial. No, now this is a uh, uh, BTK. This inhibitor. BTK. It took uh-huh. about a year to get the first cohort. Wow. And so they came back to me and said, would you like to um, open this up in U.S. oncology? And so we then started cranking through cohorts real quickly, and that became a brute nib. And so uh, that created a you know a, a enormous amount of momentum moving forward in in heme malignancies and we moved on to pi3 inhibitors other cd20 drugs antibody drug conjugates uh and and it's really become quite a uh, um explosive uh um environment to work in at this point because there's so much going on oh that's wonderful i didn't know all this history so i guess um uh, obviously, sick inhibitors still remain in trials in, in lymphoma, and there's a lot of interest in that class of medications. We're going to find out soon, I think, um, you know, just what the impact is. Uh, to my knowledge, no FDA-approved sick inhibitors to date. Anything getting close? So there is an FDA-approved sick inhibitor. Actually, yeah. that very first one we were working on um, is really good for... Rheumatoid well, arthritis. For ITP. Oh, IT, really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. So I just, Tavilese, yes, Tavilese, uh, which yeah. is which is fosdimatinib, is now FDA-approved yeah, for, right. for that. I will say, having worked with a number of sick inhibitors, um, both fosdimatinib and entosplentinib yeah. uh, more broadly, uh, had they come along before abrutinib and idelalisib and so forth, I think they would have uh, had, become, a had a role. But following that, I think it's been problematic. Now, I'm working with yet another sick inhibitor mm-hmm. uh, through Takeda. And we're combining it um, because sick is a roundabout way of knocking down MCL1. Mm-hmm. And uh, MCL1 may very well be the escape mechanism for BCL2 inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And so we're combining sick inhibitors with, uh, uh, with BCL2 inhibitors. Uh, and we haven't reported data from that, but there's some uh, interesting stuff to be reported. Okay, great. Yeah, that's the trial that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and I, it slipped my mind that the ITP approval, yeah, yeah. that came out just last year. Um, so I guess w- one question I have for you is, so when you were in Stanford and you made the jump from Stanford to Eugene, Oregon, U.S. Oncology Group, did you know in that moment that you were going to be spending the next decade of your life running so many clinical trials? Or no. did you? You didn't. No, I didn't. You know, I, I had kind of a mixed um, determination going through training whether or not I wanted to be a, a clinical researcher or not. I knew I, I did time in the lab and I knew 
the one thing the lab taught me is that I shouldn't be in the lab. Um, <laughs> me so, too. <laughs> uh, uh, I wasted uh, um, a lot of people's time and resources mm. in the lab. It's just not a strength. So I, but um, clinical research was of interest to me. I was, um, it, it was interesting creating this project and the, the Fosdematinib project and seeing the politics of how things got, um, uh, you know, who got to present things in the plenary session. And, and I was very junior at that time. So it was interesting to feel like, uh, you know, there's a hierarchy and unless you're willing to play by the rules, uh, of, you know, academic ascension, um, uh, you could, it's very competitive. And as a junior person, I felt like, uh, I didn't have many advantages to it. When I left to come to U.S. Oncology, I, I got here and I was still interested in heme malignancies and heme malignancy research, but our hematology committee was very anemic, um, pardon the pun, mm. uh, and and the committee, it's a nationwide committee and we could talk about some of the structure and so forth, but we were enrolling somewhere between uh, 50 to 150 patients on clinical trials per year as, as a full group. and and. Uh, you know, for a network our size, it didn't, it, that's not good enough. And so, um, uh, when I brought a brute nib in to the committee, uh, that created a lot of momentum because from there we got a lot access to a number of other drugs and so forth. So now we're currently the largest hematology research program in the country. Uh, last year we enrolled about 800 patients onto hematology studies, uh, as a, uh, as a group. And I, I mean, I'd say we're the biggest, I guess I don't know that for sure, but I'd be hard pressed to think that any other academic center is, is enrolling, uh, that many patients on studies. I would, I would, uh, share that belief that I think that that would probably exceed even a place like MD Anderson yeah. in terms of number of patients being accrued on study. Yeah. But when you talk about the U S oncology network, can you give listeners a sense of how many sites, um, do you right. have where people, patients are being recruited? Right. So, uh, nationwide, it's a nationwide organization, and, and what U.S. Oncology is, it's a site management organization. And there are others out there. There's Ion, there's Sarah Cannon, there's there's a variety of uh, of similar organizations. U.S. Oncology, um, when you're in practice, you contract with them. They take off a fee uh, for the services that they provide, um, and so you pay them. And what they give you in exchange is management services. And management services includes uh, drug inventory and drug purchasing and medical records, uh, um, compliance, regulatory, stuff like that. One of the pieces that they, they you can get from U.S. Oncology is a research agreement. And, and um, so there's a staff in Houston, which is headquarters. I, I don't know the head count, but I'm going to guess there might be, say, 50 individuals there who handle a lot of the clinical trial infrastructure, IRB um, uh, contracting, um, uh, liaison with the pharmaceutical companies, and and um, then bringing those to the site. So as a as a practice site, you can you know expect them to present you with opportunities for hey do you you know do you want to be involved in this study in this study in this study. I see. And then I run the committee, uh, the hematology committee, which sort of, I guess my role is to interface between um, the pharmaceutical companies that, that uh, are bringing these trials and the U.S. Oncology Network. And, you know, over time, you hopefully get to know your your sites and what studies are going to accrue well and which ones aren't. And 
and uh, managing those relationships while on all at the same time having a very busy clinical practice. Uh, I see patients four days per week. Um, no, and shut up. Yeah, so oh. it's 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 busy, and I see on my own with no help, you know, 20, 25 patients uh, a day. A day. Um, but that it's a very leveraged position because the staff in Houston, you know, 40, 50 people working to get these trials up and running when I broker the interaction. And then uh, I have another 20 staff in Eugene uh, between research nurses, data coordinators, and so forth. So it's a very uh, structured system to, to help leverage that, that, uh, um, that whole network. Now, you asked about the network itself. About 1,500 doctors nationwide underneath the um, U.S. Oncology umbrella. Uh, probably about 200-plus sites of services, um, but those are like physical addresses. Within that, there's about 60 practices, and I, my numbers could be off a little bit. But a practice like mine, for instance, um, we're in Eugene, Oregon, but there's sites in um, Florence, Oregon, Corvallis, Oregon, and so forth. So three addresses, one practice. And even within that, there's sites that are particularly good at research and sites that aren't as engaged in research. And within that, there's sites that are good in heme research or, or lung or breast. There's different sites. And, and we go all the way down to first in human phase one studies. Mm -hmm. um, all through phase four. So most sponsors can find some way of working with us. Um, and when we have the right study and, you know, we, we, you know, we know when the right study is coming in a lot of times and we deploy it broadly, I don't think anybody can compete with us for the volume and breadth of patients that we can enroll. I want to come back to that because I think that's a very interesting point. I want to know how that having that kind of ability must give you a lot of lot more power in the negotiating room but first i wanted to ask you about your work life your your work schedule because it kind of blew me away that you um you know you're such a productive researcher and you know not everyone who listens is going to be an oncologist but many people who are oncologists will mm -hmm. recognize that um when somebody starts talking about three full days or four full days of clinic yeah. uh that's a five full day job yeah. uh, because of all the phone calls and all the sort of scheduling and logistics and, and kind of being there um and then mm -hmm. on top of that you're coordinating all these trials mm -hmm. and running all these trials how do you find the time uh I'm fast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, um, I, a lot of times it's, you know, really interesting. A lot of times one of the criticisms of being involved in research that you hear is, oh, I don't want to do the extra work. And I find that in the context of a very good research staff, my staff is just so good. I admire them so much that it is so much more efficient for me to have a patient on a research study than not because every research patient has a research nurse who's dedicated to being kind of their navigator through the system. And I so, um, you know, I, I will see of that 20 to 25 patients, uh, you know, oftentimes about a third of them are on research studies. I see. Um, so that's a very high percentage. Yeah. Listeners should know that a on average across the country, we're talking yeah. about three to 9%. Yeah. So you're, you have putting maybe a third of your patients yeah. on this protocol. And so you have the support of the nurse for that third of right. patients. I see. Yeah. That helps the kind of logistics. That helps, and then the you know the U.S. oncology system is designed to let us function as executives. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's the top you know, of your license. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of people who offload a lot of work for us um, because that's how the system works most efficiently. That's one of the things I always admire about some of these practices is because um, 
you know, they have the wisdom to recognize that you really, you want a system in which everyone is kind of being pushed to make the highest decisions that fall within their scope of yeah. practice. And that's really the most efficient system. Absolutely. I see. So that's how you manage to make it work. And then on your fifth day of the week, that's the day you're on phone calls. and Yeah, that's the day I'm catching up. Catching up, I see. <laughs> but, you know, shout out to my wife who who uh, is amazing. And we have three kids who are busy, active young kids. And she's just amazing that she can uh, keep everything somehow afloat. Yeah. <laughs> credit where credit is due. <laughs> yes. Now let me come back to the, uh, the the point you were making, which is that the U.S. Oncology Network, I mean, clearly is the driver in many of these clinical studies yeah. in terms of accrual of patients. Um, one of the things I often hear from the folks who are in the room to kind of negotiate mm-hmm. trials is that the ability to put a certain volume of patients on a trial is, is a power in the no- negotiating mm-hmm. room, you're nodding. Um, how does that help you when you go in? Are you able to kind of advocate for trials that are better for your patients because you are able to to bring those trials to patients effectively? You know, having done this now for um, eight, nine, ten years or so, I feel like I know uh, almost everybody in every drug company that I need to know. I see. And they all know me. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of work is done very informally with a quick, text or a you know a one-line email where we can get agreement on concepts at a very early stage and then tailor that you know work with the companies to to you know oftentimes the best clinical trials are are the ones that are handed across the table on the back of a napkin you know Mm -hmm. i mean and and i can't count the number of studies that we've that have started that way. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, we have an idea that we want to do this. I mean, Seattle Genetics approached us a number of years ago when Brent Tuxabab was first out, and yeah. and uh, this one will speak directly to your volume question. They said, hey, we're interested in finding out if there are other cancers that express CD30. We've got tissue arrays, we've got stuff like that, but we don't actually really know how many people uh, have CD30 out there. So they said, do you think you could find us, you know, like, 500 patients or so so we did 500 the first week <laughs> 500 in a week yes. and, 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 so, and just lymphoma or all tumor no, types this was all tumor types and so and they knew it they knew cd30 was uh, in hodgkin's of course yeah this was so so this yeah. was specific to cancers other than lymphoma in fact uh, lymphoma is the yeah, only yeah. cancer excluded i see um and so we ended up enrolling 3,000 patients for them wow. over a very short period of time uh-huh and, you know, honest to goodness, to this date, I've still treated probably more women with ovarian cancer with brentuximab than, than, than relapsed Hodgkin's disease. Really? Uh, oh, wow. Um, in part because, you know, relapsed Hodgkin's yeah. disease and, trans- yep. you know, it's, yeah. it's a small niche. It doesn't work in ovarian cancer, but that's what we discovered in the study, you know. Right. Um, and we actually just published that uh, a couple months ago. Um, so to your point about size and stat, I don't think anyone else can do that. Um, and... That does give us a power, and so, and a power, you know, power is kind of a, a slippery term because it it, it implies, um, yeah, you know, a, there's some negative dynamic there, and and, but uh, more broadly, it it engenders a sense that you can do what you say you do, and so, we're we're currently um, participating in a frontline large cell lymphoma of our chop versus our chip polituzumab, yeah, our pola, and. Um, we've got a great relationship with uh, Genentech and you know I knew about that study when it was on a napkin mm-hmm. and um, 
Genentech has these internal metrics for, you know, when we have this meeting, then we start the clock and we want to have first patient in within nine months of that meeting and so forth. And, and so on that particular study, we shattered their records and, and it went, you know, I, I'm going to blow the dates, but let's just say they had something like a nine month metric and we did it in five months. Mm-hmm that it was actually too fast for them. We we broke them in this and we had to circle back and, and there were problems with the electronic data capture that hadn't been totally vetted out and so forth. So, um, but, you know, to pharmaceutical companies, time is is one of their risk variables. Of course. And so of if course. you can do things fast and you can do things on scale, um, that becomes something that's very desirable for, for the pharmaceutical companies because that's that's uh gets them potentially to market faster of course that's it's so well put and you know i think we spend so much time in oncology people thinking about you know different endpoints that can speed things up but we forget accrual rate is itself one of the things that drives how fast we can complete trials and get answers to patients um and you had just tweeted i I just remember in the last week or two uh the uncontrolled experience of our uh chp with pola yes and uh you know it looks like a good pfs uh uh we've seen that before in the history of lymphoma I know. <laughs> with promesidabom you know, and all I, those. Yeah. I, um, I would, yeah. It's an interesting discussion with yeah. our, uh, excuse me, trials against our chop. Fundamentally, if this our chip pola is, I, I don't, you know, we don't know what the we data don't know is the results yet, yet. So there's yep. no results available. So right. anything is conjecture. Um, if that's a negative study, yeah. uh, we have to fundamentally redesign yeah. uh, large cell lymphoma studies. And I think that, you know, currently our screening procedures for enrolling patients are too rigorous and we're we're selecting a a more healthy subset indolent of patients bio- yeah, yeah indolent yeah. biology because i can't count the number of times i've had a large cell lymphoma patient i'm like there's no chance this patient's getting enrolled in a study this yeah. patient needs treatment tomorrow right you know? right and those patients never get onto the studies right and and uh listeners should know that the reason dr sharman's making this kind of astute observation is because of recent trials with where RCHOP has been combined, added, or substituted for things like Revlimid, Ibrutinib, Venetoclax. Um, no, Actually, no, not sorry, Venetoclax, not, but Bortezomib. Bortezomib. Yeah. Um, um, good gracious. Epoch. Epoch. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. How many of those are negative? Uh, Obinutuzumab. And the OB, yes. Yeah. yeah. O- so there's O-chop, at least five yeah. sequential negative, negative large phase three studies. Yeah. And I think they all, I mean, one of the tactics that, of course, could be tried is you know, when you have agents you think are better than standard agents and you care about time, um, one could always try to run those trials in people who are at higher risk or have adverse right. features or higher right. IPI or something like if that. You, if you select the more healthy patients, they're going to have better outcomes. Yes. And it's difficult to show a difference between patients who are going to do well and, and patients who do poorly. Absolutely. And then that's because the power comes from the difference in the event rate. And so you have right. to have a certain event rate to have the power. Yeah. Uh, that's well put. Um, so I think that's that's very interesting. And I guess, um, you know, we hear so much about uh, innovation in oncology. And, of course, we've had tremendous innovation on the drug side. Um, but one of the ways in which we can innovate is to actually do, you know, what U.S. Oncology is doing, which is make it easier and faster and quicker to do clinical yeah. trials. That's part of the innovation picture that you don't hear people talk about as much. No, it, it uh, you know, I think that's our strength is is speed and scale. Um, and, you know, admittedly, we don't have translational research labs as part of our organization. We're a clinical trial organization. Um, and, you know, I, I, I my biggest concern right now is just how fragile the environment is. Um, we are at this, you know, healthcare reform and all these things are, are so 
they are making it so hard to practice oncology and so hard to do research well. You can break these things, but I don't think you can rebuild them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the issues that's out there is is how few patients go on clinical trials, right? That number, as you cited earlier, yeah. is, is in the single low to mid-single digits. And yet it is very difficult to do research and, and do it well. And, you know, when a research site blows up, that will never come back, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Um, it is a tenuous environment to continue doing this in currently. Let me ask you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier with your experience at the university setting and moving into US oncology, Mm -hmm. the role of ego. You talked a little bit about being a junior investigator. um, And I I have sensed, not just from what Mm -hmm. you've said, but from what many people have told me over the years, that um, one of the things that's always surprising is that there may be some people who are quite accomplished senior investigators who one would think have reached a stage in their career where they mm-hmm. want to empower their junior investigator yeah. because after all, how much more accomplishment does any one person yeah. need? Um, but yet one often finds that such investigators still have a death grip on that first authorship or that yeah. you know, corresponding author. They still yeah. really want that prominent position and they're not really making room, I think, for the next um, generation. Um, and and maybe one of the ways that which that manifests itself is that sometimes there's tensions at universities about recruiting on a trial, mm-hmm. and maybe something about a U.S. oncology is in addition to having a good infrastructure, there may be less ego involved. Do you feel like does I that play a role? I think that's part of it. Um, uh, I think that I think that a lot of docs in practice are eager to offer clinical science, clinical research as as um, as a great thing for patients, but ultimately are our viability as individuals is not linked to our academic promotion. Um, and so that's a little bit less of a pressure, but you know, <laughs> the flip side is I, you know, ego is a big thing for me too. And, and you know, there's a certain satisfaction in poking the big boys and saying, Hey, we got this, <laughs> you know, and we won the uh, enrollment battle on this one. And, and one of the things that I'm most proud of is in my committee, I lead the committee, but um, we have associate chairs who are assigned to very specific diseases. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that those individuals are now becoming more and more functionally independent. Um, an individual by the name of Robert Rifkin was already very independent by the time I came into I doing see. this. Mm-hmm. And Roger Lyons uh, in San Antonio already did a lot of uh, myeloid work and coagulation work. Those two guys were already established. But some of the other investigators, you know, John Burke in Aurora, Colorado, you know, he's a Memorial Sloan Kettering grad, you know, very steeped in research, capable mm-hmm. in practice. But he's been on the podium at Ash and ASCO a number of times. David Andorsky in... in uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado, doing indolent lymphoma. He's presented the Magnify data a number of times. Mm. Um, uh, Chrissy Senchek in my office leading our Hodgkin's effort and also, you know, uh, first author, senior author on a bunch of things. So, you know, it is way bigger than me. Uh, mm. And, and I, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is that the, the associate chairs are getting uh, the opportunity to, to lead those academic uh, investigations. When you think about, you know, all of the trials you've run over the years, um, and um, wh- what are the kinds of things that, um, that you encounter where you push back a little bit on the industry? Um, they want to run a trial a certain way, and you say, on this one aspect of it, yeah. we're going to push back a little bit. We want this done a little bit differently. 
Um, do and does anything come to mind? Oh, if, absolutely, a bunch yeah. of things come to mind, and 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 uh, I'll do them. I'll sequence these in an order that will lead to our next conversation because I know <laughs> you'll bite on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. You know, drug companies want as much information as they can get out of out of patients, and sometimes that presents a burden to the patient, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I do quickly when I'm evaluating studies, I go to the schedule of assessments, and and mm-hmm. when I see a quarterly CT scan that mm-hmm. goes on indefinitely, I'm going to push back on that, <laughs> mm-hmm. or excessive bone marrow biopsies, or or you know, um, excessive PKs um, mm-hmm. that you know keep patients there till till super late. Mm-hmm. Um, that require th- blood draws. Yeah, yeah. those mm-hmm. those are so- sorts of things, um, but. You know, I think one of the hardest ones, and I know this is a topic that's important to you, is the selection of control arms. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, I I think that selecting a control arm is really one of the most challenging aspects of of study design. Actually, it's not the innovator stuff that's that's hard. It's actually harder to figure out how to compare it to because you serve a bunch of different gods in this, right? Yeah, you serve. Um, uh, the patient, you know, what what would be an acceptable control arm uh, to a patient? You know, what's what's reasonably considered standard of care? But you're also serving the FDA, and the FDA has, uh, you know, guidance that you have to compare to an um, approved regimen because, um, you know, this hampered us early on in some of the myeloma studies mm-hmm. that— you know, in Velcade, we had moved from day one, four, eight, and eleven mm-hmm. IV mm-hmm. to day one, four, eight, and eleven sub Q, and then mm-hmm. to once a week sub Q, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and yet all the subsequent studies still had to go against one, four, eight, and eleven IV, and mm-hmm. and we couldn't enroll to those studies because because nobody did that anymore. Right. And so you're serving you're serving the patient, you're serving the FDA, but you're also serving the international community, and. You know, a number of important CLL studies have recently either compared to chlorambucil or uh, chlorambucil in combination with obinutuzumab. And in the U.S., that has become increasingly tenuous, but in places, you know, very well-established places like Italy and Germany and yeah. Australia, yeah. where where some of the novel therapies uh, are either of, you know, less limited access or so forth, that may be a suitable control arm internationally, but not in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for these large phase three studies, um, selection of the control arm is, is one of the areas where you really have to navigate a, a very narrow, um, uh, you know, a very limiting set of concerns. Do you all at US Oncology and you don't have to name names, of course, but ever come across a study where you say, you know what, um, as much as we're interested in the investigational oh, arm here, we just can't enroll absolutely. for Absolutely. That, that happens all the time. And, I see. And, uh, um, you know, I think we look, um, I, I'm just thinking about a study. It's not exactly addressing what you, what you're saying, but I'm, without naming names, I'll give, yeah. a, give a specific example. Uh, we were asked to do a study and we were haggling over whether or not the investigational drug, which is commercially available, granted, yeah. was going to be provided by the drug sponsor, by the drug manufacturer, or not. So okay. they wanted to do a research study, but wanted us to use commercial supply. So insurance will be built, and yeah, payers so will be out of pocket, yeah. and, and patients would have co-payments. And we said, hell no. Right. Um, <laughs> and we held our guns, and they pushed, and they pushed, and they pushed, and we held our guns, and we didn't do it. And you know, twelve months after doing starting the study, having enrolled five patients globally to the study, they came back to us and said, "You're right." We'll, you know, we'll pay for the drug, yeah. and so you know, I mean, I think that that these are the these are the haggling factors that that go on, and and one of the things that's honestly a challenge for me, probably more so for me than than people in academic medicine, is there is always, I think, some skepticism that community docs have the chops to to know where to push, right? I mean, there's always we're always regarded with a 
I think, a justifiable measure of skepticism. And in clinical research, you're only as good as your last trial. Mm-hmm. And if you if you fail to execute a study, you know, then that sponsor's recollection of you is is that you're a failure. So you have to succeed every single time. And I'll tell you, we haven't. You know, I mean, there have been times where you know, can we do this, this, this population where we're, we're reaching outside of our comfort zone, or maybe we're doing a study that we, we haven't studied this population before. How's it going to go? And something fails and, and, you know, hopefully you learn from those experiences so that the next time it comes around, you can say, you know, thanks for thinking of us, but, but this just isn't a study that's in our wheelhouse. I see. I guess, I guess one of the ways in which, I mean, I, I really appreciate the way you put that. Um, it sounds like, um, when you need to go to bat for your patients, you, you guys and gals have gone to bat at U.S. Oncology, yeah. and um, and that although you're tremendously successful, not everything goes the way you know we pl- have planned. Yeah. And one of the maybe when we talked about power a little bit earlier, uh, although it kind of may have some pessimistic yeah. notes to it, but one of the positive notes is power means that that the companies will have to come back to the table with you and negotiate the next study. Yeah. They're not going to cut you out of the because they need yeah. you because you guys yeah. have the ability to enroll so yeah. many patients. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about this issue. You raised this issue about community versus academic, mm-hmm. community versus ivory tower. I often hear, um, you know, sometimes I, th- I hear fair criticism. I think about the community site, community mm-hmm. practice. Uh, sometimes I think it's a bit unfair and a bit um, elitist. Mm-hmm. And I think it really is, I find irritating. And I think I can, I could see why many other people find it irritating. I also think we don't talk enough about the ways in which sometimes the experts, um, you know, they're not perfect on their own. Mm-hmm. And some of the ways in which I think experts can be flawed are, um, you know, there's some experts out there who are the quote unquote expert, but they see, they see so few patients, yeah. they've lost touch with how medicine is actually practiced. They don't know how to practice medicine in the yeah. setting of comorbidities and, right. and when people are hospitalized. Yeah. Um, sometimes experts are the ones who are the most likely, um, in my mind, to recommend, um, you know, a therapy on the basis of like a, a, a JBO paper or like some yeah. molecular biology paper. And, and you and I know there's not a shred of clinical data to support right. that. And we might be a little bit reluctant to. How do you view the balance between, you know, obviously because you because you take care of so many people, you have some skills mm-hmm. that a lot of you know quote unquote experts don't have because they don't have that experience that volume yeah. experience. How do you how do you think about these? So issues? the area that exemplifies this more than any other thing I've I've thought about is some real world data we've done in 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 CLL. Good, you're getting me to where, my next question. Yeah, where <laughs> we. Um, it, we did a registry study, and and we just you know it was a there was a lot of academic buy-in on this in part because it was sort of new at the time. Uh, registry studies have become a little more commonplace, and maybe uh, they don't generate the level of enthusiasm. But this particular CLL registry had it was kind of a who's who of of um, academic leaders, uh, and then uh, myself and and uh, Ian Flynn sort of representing the the community, and. You know, one of the things that that came out of this was that uh, the patients treated in academic medical centers were on average uh, 10 years younger, had a GFR that was about 15 points higher, um, had a lower cumulative illness or Charleston comorbidity index was what we were looking Mm -hmm. at. We see different patients. You know, somebody who's 61 who who's going to get treated for CLL is very different than somebody who's 71 who's going to get treated uh, with CLL. And so... 
you know, I, there was this, there was a, uh, a CLL expert for whom I think the world of, a very uh, fabulous individual, uh, was asked one time, um, I, I'm going to estimate the date was uh, probably, you know, around, uh, let's just say 2008 or mm. 2007, somewhere in there. What are the three best regimens for CLL? Um, uh, to which he said, FCR, FCR. FCR, you know, <laughs> and you know the MD Anderson yeah. Uh, yeah, study that great uh, that yeah. put FCR on the map. The median age, the median age in that study was fifty-seven years old. Come on, yeah. And so, I mean, in fact, I was at an earlier thing today with one of the patients who was on that study, mm-hmm. and he was forty-five when he was treated, and he continued to run competitively while he was getting FCR. The problem with that is that when you took that from the ivory tower and yeah. put that into the community, I believe FCR killed a bunch of patients because when you give FCR to somebody who's 74 yeah. and yeah. they've got a, a creatinine clearance of, of 40 and you give them one cycle and their marrow never comes back and they end up with invasive mucormycosis and their sinus eroding into their brain and they die, Yeah, that's not CLL doing that. That's the treatment. And so... There is a tension between, um, you know, what 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 the established experts are. Keep in mind, the universities see about fifteen percent of the cancer medicine in the United States. So we take care of the remaining eighty-five percent, mm-hmm. um, and they're different patients. Mm-hmm. If you're going to MD Anderson and you live in Portland, Oregon, you're getting on a plane. You've yeah. got financial means. Yeah. You've got education. You're capable of navigating the web you probably have a loved one who's helping you out and that's very different from many of the patients i see in clinics so some of that ten, some of the unique viewpoint we bring is okay that may work in your environment but but the real you know what we put in air quotes the real world environment is is oftentimes very different i think that that hits upon so many things so well i mean i guess i'd say that um FCR is such a great example yeah. of a regimen that, you know, what's the median age of somebody with CLL in this country? I think it's in the 70s. 71 at diagnosis 70, yeah. and 74 at first line of therapy. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, data from people 20 years younger. Yeah. Often, um, you know, somebody else, a guest of this podcast, Christopher, Christopher Booth, says a lot of these trials enrolling Olympians who happen to have cancer yeah. because they'd otherwise be capable of sort of competing in Olympic sports. Um once many years ago, I went to a, a very good cancer hospital, and they talked about the patients they see, and they talked about, yes, you know, we have some people from the community. We also have some people who live really, really far away, and they come all the way here because they want to get really good care. This person was talking about a person with metastatic colon cancer mm-hmm. who was flying something like 2,000 miles to get full fox. And part of me felt like that's just not right as well. Right. You're not giving any better full fox than they'd get in the in the local community hospital, and you're just really inconveniencing somebody who yeah. happens to have a life-limiting condition. The other thing I sometimes think about is when you read um, experiences from these quaternary or tertiary referral centers about the frequency with which non-small cell lung cancer is EGFR mutant or ALK mutant or something right. like that. And I often wonder if perhaps they are getting a little bit higher percentages than what we see at, you know, I, I rounded the VA and, yeah. you know, I sometimes feel like I'm not seeing those percentages. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so these are some of the discrepancies in which I think the ivory tower can be a bit sheltered. Um, and I think that's good to know because at the end of the day, you know, the whole purpose of research is to apply the results to the average person right. with cancer and across America. Right.
I wanted to ask you a little bit about real world evidence because I think you've done a number of very interesting things here. You know, there's that paper that uh, you and I both like to, to pick on, Ibrutinib versus chlorambucil, yeah. uh, the registration study that led to the first line approval. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, and you were the one who wrote that really marvelous letter to the editor where you pointed out that there have been a number of agents that have at least shown PFS, some even OS benefit beyond chlorambucil, um, and that in the CLL registry that you and Tony Motto and colleagues set up, yeah. um, single-agent chlorambucil was infrequently used as right. the initial therapy. Um, how do you, how have you used real-world evidence in your scholarship and in your practice? Where do you think real-world evidence has a role? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, it is it is hypothesis generating. It is um, something that sands out the rough edges. Uh, it is illuminating for educational gaps. Um, you know, I we we saw Anthony and I have worked together on a number of, of real world endeavors and and you know, unfortunately in, in, in the field of CLL, which is which is where I spend a lot of my time, I feel like there is so much um, activity in the disease that the general medical oncologist I feel like CLL is a disease that is almost impossible to, to keep up with. You know, it's one thing if, if it's innovation in breast cancer and, and you're seeing, you know, one or two new breast cancers per week and, and, uh, and so forth. But CLL is a disease where, you know, a, a, a common community oncologist may treat one, two, or three patients a year. I mean, that's not an unusual number. And so um, there's a lot of noise, right? You've got the new drugs. You've got the new molecular markers. You've got resistance markers. You've got, you know therapy that's probably predicated upon which mutations or which which genomic features somebody has mm -hmm. and i think it's become very difficult and one of the things we saw in the cll registry was just the 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 lack of use of fish and um the near absent use of ighv mutation analysis which when i'm picking therapy that is the most important test in my mind to figure out how to how to treat somebody and yet we see that it's it's done in fewer than 10 percent of patients hmm. so real world data can can highlight educational gaps uh it can address uh needs within the field um you know we I, you know from an evidence basis in terms of comparative <coughs> effectiveness i think it it starts to weaken um mm -hmm. uh but then you know pursuant to this exact study you know, as we were talking about selection of control arms earlier, you know, we had good data to say, well, how much is chlorambucil being used? Right. And right. and we could just sort of go to that very quickly. And and chlorambucil monotherapy, I think we... Four percent. I, I was going to say seven percent, four percent. It was very low. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we're thinking about designing studies, we can go to that real world data and say, you can't do this. You that's know, exactly, um, that's exactly what I think it's best used yeah. for. Yeah. You can just look to see what are people actually doing and what is a reasonable comparator. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you just to flesh out. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, but let, I'm kind of curious to know. Um, uh, you have a patient with CLL. You've been following for a few years. You're reaching the point where you're getting some indications to treat this person. Yeah. Can you walk me through your thought process? How do you think about, you know, yeah. who are the people in whom you deploy ibrutinib up front? Do yeah. you still see a rule for BR? Are there a few FCR patients you yeah. think about? Yeah, uh, All of the above. And then yeah. this week it even gets more confusing. Yes, with of, uh, OB venetoclax. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, my... my um, We'll talk about first-line patients. We can talk about relapse refractory. Yeah, yeah. And, and 
what I'll try to do is also tell you where where my opinion stands relative to others in the field because because there's honestly difference of opinion in this. Um, so my first thing I divide somebody into is are they IGHV mutated or unmutated? Because okay. uh, unmutated is generally speaking not going to get the sustained benefit out of a uh, chemoimmunotherapy yeah, approach. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I I don't want to say I take it entirely off the table, but I'm saying the starting point is that I'm not giving those patients chemoimmunotherapy and maybe something about their social situation or so forth could talk me back into it. But but I'm, I'm predicating that those patients are, are going to be um, treated with a novel agent up front. Uh, my mutated patients, then it's kind of a question about uh, what's their fish. Yeah. So if their fish is adverse... Uh, that's a patient that I'm also not going to treat with chemoimmunotherapy. You know, IGHV mutated in 17P is not a super common combination, but yeah, it, uh, happens, it yeah. happens. So, you know, you might filter out a, a few more patients. And then when you get to those mutated patients, there's kind of uh, with good fish, then you're looking at their fitness yeah. uh, status. And um, I would be willing to still treat somebody with FCR yeah. provided they are the 45 year yeah. old marathon runner who yeah. who has it but throw in any comorbidities yeah. or age that gets closer to 65 yeah. i'd be very hesitant to do that um so those people go with br well so yeah so then those patients who have comorbidities i would i would certainly uh consider br but there is now um level one evidence of abrutinib versus br yeah and um you know, I think that it's it's a choice at that point for a patient to say, you know, do you want a fixed duration therapy that yeah. that yeah. BR in a mutated patient? You know, you're thinking five, six years of of disease control. Yeah, six cycles, and then you get several years on the yeah. back end. Versus ibrutinib indefinitely, better PFS. Right. Yeah. Now, what's upsetting yeah. my entire algorithm is is this week um, yeah, with yeah. obituzumab venetoclax with a good um, PFS with a super PFS. Uh, I've actually enrolled twenty patients on a frontline study with that uh, combination. I really like it. Now, uh, what does the OB add there? Because I see another study that's OB venetoclax versus venetoclax and saying that almost overlapping curves right. there. Um, what we're doing in our study is we're using obinutuzumab as a debulking agent. Okay. And so um, uh, we give patients two months of uh, obinutuzumab at which point they really shouldn't have much residual CLL. So therefore, initiating the venetoclax entirely as an outpatient, we're not using any hospitalization to do this. Okay. Uh, we can ramp up the venetoclax and-, and uh, I see, without we, having to watch them for TLS right, and everything. Right, okay, so it yeah. reduces the, yeah. the, the, the TLS uh, component of this. Yeah. So, you know, we don't have much data for abrutinib following venetoclax. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of data for venetoclax post-abrutinib. Yeah. Yeah. But- Ah, boy, if it were me and I needed treatment, and I don't know that IGHV mutation status does or doesn't matter to this uh, discussion point, but if I had CLO and I needed frontline therapy, I'm, I would be tempted to choose that for myself. Um, uh, fixed OB debulking and then yeah, the okay. yeah, fixed duration, long disease control, uh, non-genomically destabilizing. Uh, I got a brutinib in my back pocket, and gosh, 10 years from now, if we're not curing this disease regularly, I guess I, I'll be disappointed, right? So um, in the relapse setting, I don't think there's much role for chemoimmunotherapy in the relapse setting. Um, Your ibrutinib or venetoclax. Yeah, yeah. ibrutinib or venetoclax almost entirely. You know, could I get talked into it for a patient, again, whose social circumstances mm -hmm. are what they are possibly? Now, I will tell you that, that Rick Furman, Steve Coutre, 
uh, they would say chemotherapy is dead in the frontline setting. And, and they will argue that point passionately with their own informed perspective. And I've, I've been a part of debates that I actually was kind of surprised by how heated they got. Wow, you know? so, yeah. so there are, there are leaders in the field who don't feel like chemotherapy still has a role. Again, going back to, to registry data, we know that Abrutinib has about a 40% market penetration in the frontline I setting. See. I see. Uh, with CD20, quote unquote, uh, being about 20%. Um, and CD20 may be rituximab or obinutuzumab or... Um, no OFA. Uh, not much. No <laughs> OFA, right? Um, yeah, not much. And uh, then the remaining 40% being uh, chemoimmunotherapy. Your 17P patients... Mutated, unmutated, you're going to give them a brutinib up front? I'm giving them a brutinib up front. You are unmutated patients, you're giving a brutinib up front? Um, unless, unless they're going on my study with obinutuzumab debulking and followed by venetoclax. I see. So it's only your mutated patients, young, super fit, you'll think about FCR. Yeah. Uh, comorbidities, that's when you're in this torn area. Maybe yeah. BR yeah. until recently, until this week. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Um, so you do all this, and then the next patient in your clinic could be somebody with breast cancer. <laughs> Is that true? Uh, yes. Yes. Wow. So you really do have to master. Uh, how do you keep up with the literature? Um, it's hard. You know, I it is difficult, and and I feel like there are areas that are are beginning to escape my grasp. And I do like practicing in a big practice. And my group is we've got some incredible talent. Uh, we have a guy who used to run the sarcoma prog program at Dana Farber in our practice, and so sarcomas, I'm like, they're yours. <laughs> they're your, okay. You know, some of the GU stuff I, I hand off to uh, some of my colleagues. Um, but, you know, a, a, a lot of the lung, colon, breast, you know, that stuff is so available from an education perspective, uh, it hasn't been as hard to keep up with, with those fields. And then how do you, as a group, divide your, uh, your call and your inpatient duties? You know, rotation, uh, whoever next up uh, type thing. So uh, all the docs in my group can see CLL. I think I probably have a disproportionate amount of it in our group. I see. But, and, you know, they oftentimes come to me and say, hey, CLL, I'm going to treat them. You know, here's their circumstances. What do you, what would you do? And so we have that those discussions back and forth. And your inpatient service is in, is in Eugene? Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, you have everything there, but including acute leukemia, or do you transfer out some of the acute leukemia? Uh, we do acute leukemia. We do wow. inductions. Um, I, we've had a very uh, nice collaboration with OHSU, and, and there's a lot of back and forth with those patients. Um, uh, I, I generally hand them off to OHSU for induction, and then I'll do consolidation. Um, for the IDAC uh, yeah. patients, yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. You know, I guess I I'm I was impressed with you before I started talking to you. I'm even more impressed with I you blew now. It. Oh, no, no. No. <laughs> I'm even more impressed with you now because I think you know um, uh, you keep up in so many things. You're obviously a leader in in the trials that you run. You run all these trials. I mean, you're doing the work of of three people, three or four academic physicians. Um, I guess what I want to kind of ask you is. Um, a question on behalf of the fellow. So, you know, imagine yeah. there's a really bright fellow coming yeah. up in Stanford or UC Davis or OHSU or, you know, wherever, yeah. second or third year fellow. And this fellow is trying to decide, you know, what kind of career do I want? Yeah. And like so many fellows, this fellow probably saying that, you know, I want trials to be a part of my career. I like trials. I'm interested in trials. I'd like to advance what we know and what's the best care for patients. Um, and then this fellow is kind of choosing between you know, as you must have had to choose at some point, um, you know, between staying on at a university, yeah. 
focusing on just one cancer, or not even these days. I heard a rumor, by the way, just a side mm-hmm. note. I heard a rumor that at, at a top cancer center, not only, and it's not a rumor, I actually heard this is true, not only did they divide non-small cell lung cancer, like there's a doctor who just sees non-small cell, there's a doctor who just sees EGFR mutants go to one doctor, yeah. and then the ALK, Ross one, and RET go to another doctor, <laughs> and then and I was like, oh my God, how specialized yeah. are people gonna get? Yeah. Okay, so. Quaternary subspecialist. Quaternary, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm only the 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 met amplification <laughs> non-small, and if it's not met amplified, I'm not going to see. Yeah. Okay, so so this fellow is choosing between you know the traditional academic university, um, obviously um, with uh, with all the um, tremendous uh, starting salary that yeah. comes with, um, right. uh, versus going to you know U.S. Oncology Dallas Texas yeah. or U.S. Oncology Eugene Oregon or um, you know a, a large group that yeah. has a record of doing trials. What do you what do you advise the fellow of the pros and cons? What have you seen as the strengths? Um, yeah. What do you uh, see as what's the grass is always greener side of things? Right. You know, I think I think the advantage of academics is time, um, and I think the bargain historically was that if you go into academics, you are sheltered in a way that you can have more control over your own time, and that it comes with a cost. You get paid less, um, but the reward is uh, flexibility, and and that flexibility can be used to pursue academic pursuits and so forth. I do feel like that bargain's breaking down, mm-hmm. uh, that more and more the academic positions are, are forcing people into more and more clinical responsibility, and I don't think that necessarily is associated with a concurrent rise in, uh, in, in pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that, um, I think that the right academic job could be really fabulous, mm-hmm. but I think there are a lot of bad academic mm-hmm. jobs mm-hmm. out there. But the same is true of community practice. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, the, a bad job in community oncology is a dime a dozen, mm-hmm. uh, and a good job in, in, uh, community oncology is very difficult to find. Um, you're not going to find them by looking in ads. You're not going to find them, you know, working with recruiters. You're going to get them by word of mouth. I see. And if somebody's interested in research, I don't think there's a right answer, whether academic or, or community. Frankly, I think it's probably easier to do it in, in academics. Um, but I would say look for some place that actually has structural weakness uh, and go build it yourself. Rise to the top of whatever environment you can and then use that as a stepping stone if you want to go somewhere else. Um, and the problem is I, I think we're so – all of us are we're geographically wedded to – um, you know, be near family or, or in a certain environment or a certain metropolitan area that we limit ourselves in terms of the sorts of jobs we would look for. And, and I always, I guess, to distill your question to the three things, I, I think that you have a balance of compensation to effort. You've got a geography, and that could be anything from quality of the schools to the physical environment to proximity to family or so forth. And then you have the existential reward of what you're doing. And if you can get two out of three, you're probably got a great job, you know, uh, get three out of three. It probably says more about you than the job itself. Oh, that's well put. Well, Dr. Sharman, thank you so much for taking time out of your, sure. your busy schedule. I think it's been an illuminative discussion. Um, I think, uh, uh, interested readers should uh, go through some of your recent clinical trials. I know there's just in the last couple of weeks you have a paper in JCO. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's just a lot. I mean, it's um, it's a it's a it's an excellent collection of research that is is very important, and and you all at US Oncology have shown that you um, you know, can really make trials happen. And I think your commentaries over the years and your thoughts on, you know, how do you navigate this tension of control arms, regulatory environment? I think they're spot on, and I encourage listeners to um, to take a read. Um, it's very it's very some thoughtful things you all have put out there. Thank um, thanks for taking time on your busy schedule. I know you were just swooping through town. We managed to meet, okay. um, but it's a pleasure to have you here. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.